January 27th, 2019, we continue our study of Proverbs. This is the second half of the study on guidance, finding the will of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, for your love for us. Your mercies are new. They abound to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that the greatest exercise of the will of God was calling us from all eternity to belong to Jesus causing us by his grace to be made alive and to live to the uh, praise of his glorious grace. Take and use our study to help us, to encourage us, to teach us, and to free us. In Jesus' name, amen. The main image in the book of Proverbs for life is something called the path of life, which we are all on. We're on the path of life. We're walking down the path of life, and there's at least two things marking it. On, on the one side, there are distractions. They can be good or bad. And so the sage is writing as a father instructing a son. So this literature is really parental guidance literature. A father instructing a son about how to stay on the path of life, live to the praise of God's Lord's place, live wisely. It takes wisdom to uh, walk the path of life. And so he's, he's warning about distractions, good things that you can overdo, or bad things that are dangerous. And as we walk the path of life, we have to make decisions. We have to decide things from as mundane as, what tie do I put on this morning? I actually spent, I don't know, 10 seconds maybe, 15 seconds at my tie wrap looking at the ties, and I chose this one. What was the reason? No particular reason. It just, I don't think I've worn it in a while, so I try to rotate how often I wear my ties. But you could, you could create a continuum or, or a, um, a chart for decisions that are highly important to not so important. So what are highly important decisions that we have to make along the path of life? Typically those are decisions about what? Relationships. Relationships. Financial decisions, do I buy a house, do I rent, do I get a car, what, Gail? Careers. My career, what I'm going to do with my life, and I, I actually just, uh, on that note, I spent four years of my life at the University of Virginia working with college students as a career counselor, helping them decide about their majors, what they want to do with their lives, planning, job interviews, etc. So that was the first thing I did. Marriage. Who do I marry? And as a pastor, I've sat with a lot of people who want to know, should we get married? Is, you know, is that the person I'm supposed to marry? Excellent. So very important decisions. How about where I go to church? Is that an important decision? Extremely important decision. And some less so. What would be some examples of decisions that are not so important that nonetheless we have to make? What do I have for dinner? What do I have for dinner? <laughs> uh, are you free in Christ to decide between salmon cakes and chicken? Are you free in Christ to decide that? Yeah, you are. There's a, there's a liberty, there's a freedom that God gives us that we live within because, um, that isn't, because neither of those choices is necessarily gonna, not necessarily going to violate the precepts of God as we'll see as we go through the study. So, the wise person seeks to become a good decision maker and the overarching theme is guidance. How does God guide us? And we're at the top of the second page of your handout sort of finishing discussing the doctrine of providence. Anybody remember what the, the Latin pro and video mean? The word providence means pro and video. It means to, to, see, before. to see before. 
So God, who knows everything, who has actually willed everything, sees before and by his hand of providence guides and directs your life so that what comes to pass is God's will for your life. So we're going to jump in and we're going to answer this question as we get started. How can God uh, govern us providentially? And on the strength of, and these are verses from Proverbs alone, on the strength of the fact that, number one, God made everything. Somebody read those two verses for us. The poor man and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. Proverbs 29, 13. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Proverbs so, 16, 4. Thank you, Dana. So when the oppressor reads in his Bible on the 29th of the month that he has in common with the poor man, that the light gives light to the eyes of both, what should he say to himself? Stop oppressing the poor man. God's created your eyes. You're ultimately no different than the person you're oppressing, right? Shouldn't the oppressor say that? He shouldn't be oppressing the poor. God sees everything. Somebody read that verse for us. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Proverbs 15.3 Good. Right? This isn't Santa Claus, or maybe this idea got creeped into Santa Claus, who knows when you're sleeping and all this kind of stuff. God is present everywhere in his universe. Psalm 139. Where can I flee from your presence? There's absolutely nowhere God isn't present. That is to give us comfort and accountability. Right? Often things we do things as it were in the dark because we think God doesn't see. You see in the Psalms an interaction with the psalmist and the nations and the evil people and whatnot. One thing they say is God doesn't see. God doesn't know. God doesn't care. And they're living lies because none of those things are true. Do you know what philosophical uh, religious commitment um, sort of lives according to denies that this is true? I'll give you a hint. Thomas Jefferson was one. Deism. That's the view that God, there's a God, he created the world, and it's like he wound it up like a clock and took his hands off it and said, have at it, I'm not controlling anything. And what that tends to give people is a lot of license to do whatever they want. Okay? I'll talk more about deism as we move through the handout. How about the fact that God knows everything? Who would read that? The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the treacherous man, Proverbs 22, 12. Okay, we're grateful for that. God directs everything. Somebody read those for us. Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his ways? The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. The lot is cast into the lap, but his heavy decision is from the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Good, thank you, Dory. So you read Proverbs 20, 24, man's steps ordained by the Lord. How can you understand his way? What's the answer to that question? How can you understand your life, your way? The Holy Spirit giving you what, Melissa? Wisdom. Wisdom. Guidance, God revealing his word to you. And there's a sense in which you can't understand your way entirely, particularly looking forward. We don't know God's providence is looking forward, 
But looking back, we can say, oh, God moved in this way and that way to bring about his purposes. And he does call us to understand these things. Not, this is not a verse that sanctions willful ignorance. What should everybody in government anywhere on the world say when they read on the 21st of the month, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he wishes. What should every person in authority and government say when they read that? It should burst into prayer instantaneously, praying what? Lord, turn my heart for your good, for, for good purposes, for the betterment of the society that I govern. Let me know what you want. Show me your laws. Give me wisdom. Let me know what is just. Stay away from bribes, right? We'll have a lesson on praying for your country because Proverbs gives us a lot of data to know how to do that. That's what everyone in authority should say when they read that verse. Direct my heart in the way that you want it. That is the place of freedom and glory and joy and truth and righteousness. The lot is cast in the lap, every decision from the Lord. That means there is no such thing as what in this universe? No such thing as luck. No such thing. No such thing. Now, I'm a golfer. And sometimes I hit it out of bounds and hits a tree and bounces back into the fairway. And my brother calls that, what's Dave call that? Pastor shot. And when it happens to him, he calls it pastor brother shot. And I have to say, if I ever believed in luck, it would be then. That, but God is even in control where the golf ball goes, okay? I'm not saying you should go, go to the local casinos and gamble because of this, but God's in control of everything. The horse is prepared for the day of battle. The victory belongs to the Lord. Should you prepare for battle? Yes. yes. Who do you trust for the victory? God. Should you pray for it if you're in warfare? Absolutely. Okay. God is thwarted by nothing. Somebody read those two verses for us. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Proverbs 19.21 There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. Proverbs 21.30 Thank you, Charles. So how does that make you feel when you read those? What does that give you in your heart? Well, it, I mean, it gives you courage that... Okay. that I mean, even your mistakes yeah. uh, can be uh, not, I mean, you know, you don't blame the Lord, but Good. he's even in control of Good. what you've messed up. Yes, he is. Good. It should give you comfort, yeah. encouragement, courage. I think where we're going to end this lesson is Christians are not called to make decisions with fear and anxiety. We're really free because we know God loves us, God guides us. We're free to make decisions Sometimes young men come to me and say, how do I know I'm supposed to marry my girlfriend? And I ask a number of questions like, do you love her? Yes. Do you want to marry her? Yes. Is there anything unbiblical about this? Not that I know of. Okay. Marry her. Yeah. Okay. Now, often there's a little bit more to it than that, and that's why premarriage counseling <laughs> is very helpful, because some people make unwise decisions about who they marry, and they get themselves into a real pickle. Mike, I, I have one, one question sure. going back to uh, Proverbs 21. He turns it wherever he wishes, uh, which, which means that God can really turn the heart of somebody. He's the only one that can. Okay. Okay. Sometimes you hope he does, but he doesn't. But that's all right. Well, we pray that he does. <laughs> We're all praying now for the Chinese leaders in Chengdu. Is it Chengdu? 
Yeah. We're praying for the Chinese leaders there, right? Almost daily, we're praying for Christians persecuted in this world. And we're praying that God would, what? Soften the hearts of their leaders and convert their leaders. That's not a prayer in vain. We may not see it in our lifetime, but he's the only one that can change them for his good. And if, because God is sovereign, therefore we pray. If he isn't sovereign, prayer doesn't do anything. Prayer, prayer doesn't affect anything if God isn't sovereign, right? Gail? Isn't it that he's allowing us to take a part in the kingdom of God by praying that he will show us what his will is and, and change our heart where he wants it to go? I mean, because he, he will anyway do it, but it, it blesses us. It's a blessing for us to be involved in the process, and it brings us closer in line with where he wants us to go, and that makes our relationship with him stronger and more intimate, where we can trust him. Preach it, girl. That's just that's a mini theology of why we pray right there. That's excellent. We have this privilege. God gives us a privilege of co-laboring with Him and what happens on the earth. I mean, are you encouraged when specific prayers are answered? Do you have those? And I should be careful because God can answer our prayers by saying no. He can answer our prayers by saying wait. He can answer our prayers by actually doing exactly what we ask. But this is part of our relationship with him. He invites us into this and get, allows us to be co-laborers with him in his work on the earth. It's thrilling. Look, how do people get saved? Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We share the gospel and God saves them, but we were a part of that. And of course, we give God all the glory because he made his word efficacious in the heart of the person we share with. But there's, from, from Janice and me, there's little greater thrill than praying together and seeing God answer prayers. It's just thrilling. Build your faith. We need to pray more, pray more, pray more. Thank you. That's a very good little mini theology of why we pray together. So tell me what the relationship is between God's character, who God is, and what God does. What's the relationship between those two things? He works in uh, accordance to his character. So everything he does is a reflection is of and consistent with his character. His ways are good ways. His ways are righteous. That doesn't mean we always understand that. Deuteronomy, the secret things belong to the Lord. The revealed things belong to us and to our children. So one of the reasons we have a fabulous children's ministry at Wallace is we believe that. We are imparting to our children the revealed things of the Lord, namely his word, or church history, what God has done in church history. But there are certain things that are mysterious. Uh, Old Testament scholar Bruce Walkie points out the irony alone in Genesis 1 through 9. Think of the irony. Abel trusted God and died. Enoch trusted God and didn't die. Um, uh, Noah trusted God and everybody else died. There you go. Three people. Everybody trusted God. Abel, he was killed. Enoch, he never died. Noah, everybody else died. And he just points that out. Anyway, so although God's providences might be hard to understand, we can be certain he is absolutely sovereign, and yet the choices of human beings are what two words describe them. God is absolutely sovereign, but human beings' choices are both free and significant. And you, you, you see, you want to, I'm going to illustrate it in the opening pages of the book of Acts. When the apostles were preaching the crucifixion of Jesus, 
Did they lay blame at the feet of certain people? You know your Bible well enough to know that they lay blame at the certain people, Allison? They sure did, unapologetically. Look at your handout, Acts 2.23. This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Should they have done that to the Son of God? Absolutely not. It was the most heinous thing ever done in the history of the world. According to what plan? God's. They acted heinously crucifying Jesus. And yet he laid his life down of his own accord. No one takes it from him. And this was according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Actually, from before, he was the lamb, the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Before the world was ever created, God had determined to save a people from Adam's ruined race through the death of his son. But here, do you see the point? One second, Gail, do you see the point? Three and terribly significant choices made by people in Jerusalem in 30 AD. And they're... They're accountable for those decisions, and yet, according to the predetermined for, uh, plan of God and His foreknowledge. Gail? Well, I just, I, what I get encouragement from of what we can mess up here on earth is when the soldier's ear was cut off, yeah. Jesus was so upset and fixed it. It's yeah. like, it, it makes me, if I screw up out there, I know He's going to do that for me. If I pray that, Lord, I'm so sorry I screwed up, please fix it. You know, He can do that Good. as easily as He put that man's ear back on. And, we, and that's what we try to do is mess up God's will. Good. Yes, excellent. The other place this, uh, this tension is revealed is when they're praying in Acts 4. They're actually praying to God, saying, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So all the early apostles were Calvinists. You can laugh. I'm sort of being a little facetious. But as they pray to God, they're reminding God that that there were people that, that were, um, that were um, against Jesus. They killed him. They treated him unjustly. And yet, they did that according to what? According to whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The, um, this, this is, of course, hard for, for us to understand. Like yes. How... how I can make a mistake or I can make a bad judgment, but yet at the same time, it was predetermined that, that, that I do it. See, this, yes, this is that, it's very hard. That I think contention that it is, is. hard to understand. And, and we're never ultimately going to understand it, but we just have to assert what the Bible asserts. The choices of human beings are free and responsible. And God is absolutely sovereign and never the author, never the author of sin and evil. Okay. So therefore, God governs all acts of his creatures in various kinds of providences. We can talk about uncommon providences. He suspends the laws of nature to create miracles. Right? A miracle is a temporary suspension of the laws of nature. Jesus walking on the water. By all rights, he was a man that weighed who knows how much Jesus weighed, but by all rights he should have sunk. At that moment, he suspended the laws of nature. God is in control of every molecule in the universe. The sun stood still. The, the sun stood still, all kinds of things like this. Yeah, that's an uncommon providence. Then you have common providences. God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. You have great providences. He parted the waters of the Red Sea. Small providences. He provided a parking space for you when you needed it. 
smiling providences, you get bumped from coach to first class on a long distance flight. <laughs> that happened to me. Very sweet smiling providence. Frowning providence, a dear friend contracts cancer. Or disciplining providence, God chastises you for your sin. And as we saw two weeks ago, God does not ask us to look at his providences looking forward, but rather they are best read like Hebrew sentences backwards. You know that Hebrew is read from right to left. If you open a Hebrew Bible, that's the way it's read that way. So we look at God's providences looking back. Even the things people do against us for evil. We trust God is sovereign. Classic example in the Old Testament? Joseph. Genesis 50, 20. The moment of truth comes. Joseph makes sure that all his brothers are wearing diapers, if you kind of know what I mean. (laughs) And here's what he says in the moment of truth. You meant evil against me, God meant it for good. So the choices of his brothers were real, they were significant, they came from their own wicked hearts, and they meant evil against Joseph. Overriding that, superintending that, God meant it for good. God meant it for good. And what's the New Testament equivalent of that in Romans chapter 8? Do I have it in the handout? Go ahead, Andy. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Thank you. Tremendous comfort there. Basically, what Paul is doing in this section of Romans 8 is he's, he's peeling back the veil of reality as we see it, we, we see the natural world. He's peeling it back and giving you a look into what's going on in the heavenly places. And according to this verse, God's absolutely in control of everything, working good purposes. Someone illustrated it this way. What we see is the underside of a patchwork of a quilt, of a a, knitting thing, and it looks like a mess. Turn it over and you have this beautiful pattern. In this life, we're pretty much, we just see the the messy uh, stitching. On the other, there's a beautiful plan being worked out. Okay, so now we're ready for the question, how does God guide his children? The mind of man plans his way. Okay? God directs his steps, the mind of man plans his way. How does God guide us? And the first question you want to ask is, do you want, it? Do you want the will of God? Not everybody does. Somebody get, a lot of people get up and even though they're Christians, they go, I'm going to do what I want to do today. Is that a good thing? It's not a good thing, is it? What should you want? I want to move in concert with God's will today. I want to, I want to please Him. I want to glorify Him. The greatest pleasure and the highest privilege of humanity is to reflect back to God something of his glory as we live in concert with his character. That is our greatest pleasure and highest privilege, to reflect back to God in our thoughts, words, and deeds something of his moral glory. And here I'd say there's a part of our hearts that we want, we want God to be a, a deistic God. We kind of want that he's there, but we want to be in control of our own lives. Right, now that I'm saved, and this is, you know, these are these people that you, you meet people who, who, um, who, they look like they're living like hedonists, okay? And then you find out, oh, you know, I'm a Christian. I, I said the sinner's prayer when I was 18 years old. That means I'm saved. Doesn't mean you're saved because you said the sinner's prayer when you were 18. 
what we'll see, right, is the fruit being born. Are you living consistent with your profession? Saying the sinner's prayer when you're 18 doesn't necessarily mean a lot, particularly if you're living like a pagan. In fact, we ought to say there's enough evidence here, friend, that, um, that your profession of faith has not been accompanied by possession of faith. Okay, so we just have to be careful of this deistic tendency in our hearts. Most people think um, it's kind of like, let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. You have door number one, door number two, door number three. And our job is to, is to find the will of God. Which door is it behind? As if it's hidden. And we're supposed to go about divining the will of God. And pagans do this in a whole lot of different ways. I don't know if you're familiar with this. They read livers. They cast arrows. They, uh, they use water to... Um, to, it's called hydromancy. They consult spirits, and all of these things are outlawed in uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy's uh, practices of sorcery and divination. God says, no, sir, 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 no. So we often think, okay, I'm going to look for a sign. And I'm not convinced that's all bad. Not convinced that's all bad. But if the presupposition is the will of God is hidden, and he's sort of left it to me to do the work of finding out what that is, I don't think that's the way the Bible views this. God loves us. Does he want his will to be known to you? Yes. He's a good father. Parents don't make their will for their kids a secret. (laughs) They guide them. They're involved in their life. God has given us his Holy Spirit, and he guides us because he loves us. Why would he want to hide his will from us? So the question is, how does he guide us? Should you expect him to whisper in your ear? Should you expect uh, a little note under your pillow saying, yep, that's the person you're supposed to marry, that's the job you're supposed to take? No, our verse says, the mind of man plans his way, the Lord directs his steps. What two things are required of you based on that verse? You're required to... Know, know the mind of God, know what it his word is. Okay, the mind of man plans his way, right? Is that the first half of the verse? What's that require of you? To do what? Plan. Plan. And then the second half of the verse, the Lord directs his steps, what's that require of you to do? Trust. Trust him. Plan and trust. Find out what he wants. Okay? So, um, we don't want formulas, but I've given you one anyway. Here's a simple formula that I believe is biblical. Make plans wisely, according to God's precepts, checking your heart, Trusting God. So let's unpack it. First, make plans wisely. Do you remember the opening illustration we used two weeks ago to introduce this lesson? I use this illustration. You're in church and you hear about a missions trip. And walking out of church, you're thinking, well, my heart was kind of tugged when I heard about that. Should I go on the missions trip? That's a decision you have to make along the path of life. Women's Bible study, starting Mondays, 10 a.m., first Monday in February 4th. Should you attend it? That's a decision you have to make. Well, let's go back to the should you go on the missions trip that you hear about in the worship service. What do you think it means to be wise about that? Well, let's suppose you're a grad student, and the day you come back from the trip, you you have to take your LSATs. You think about going to law school and you're going to take your LSATs the day you get back from the trip. Would that be a wise thing to do, all things being equal? 
Probably not. Let's suppose the, uh, the trip to the border of Mexico and the United States for the mission trip is going to be in a 15-passenger van, and you know as a 25-year-old that every time you're in a 15-passenger van, you get sick. Should you go on the trip? Maybe not. See, you have to ask these kinds of questions. Now, if there was a situation you were thrown into, and you had no choice, and you got sick in a 15-passenger van, and you found yourself in one, what should you pray? God, overcome. Overcome this tendency I have through whatever biological weakness. Would you overcome? Would you over, su- supersede this? Now, God may answer that prayer. He may not. But, again, so you're asking questions of your situation. You're trying to be wise. That's why we save money for a rainy day need. You don't, you don't spend every dime in your paycheck. You need to plan for the things that you're eventually going to need. Is planning unspiritual? No. The scripture tells you to plan. Now this is made, uh, we've made light of this through the light bulb jokes. Have you heard about these? The light bulb jokes. How many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Two. One to change the bulb. The other to rebuke the spirit of darkness. How many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Three. One to get the ladder. One to change the bulb. One to mix the drinks. How many Methodists does it take? Five, one to change the light bulb, and four, to study the effects on anybody else so they don't offend somebody. How many Calvinists? None. God will ordain when the light goes on. (laughs) Right or wrong? Wrong. Wrong. A true Calvinist knows that you go get the light bulb and you plug it in. That's how God ordained that the light would go back on. Because it needed a light bulb. It's just... You ever hear the light bulb jokes? Didn't they come out like in the 70s or something? Man, I'm reaching way back in the, in the, in the, uh, the vault of oldies. <laughs> 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock, wonderful. I think we're going to actually finish today. Miracle of miracles. So, be wise. Seek counsel. Ask people. Um, you're thinking, I think I used this illustration before, you're thinking about going into a certain career. What should you do? Talk to as many people as you can who are in that field to find out from them what it's like working in that field to know if it's going to be a match for who you understand yourself to be. How do you know you want to marry somebody? For me, the bottom line is humility. All things being equal, are they humble? Because you, when you marry somebody, marriage is all about fighting sin. How are you going to fight sin? Because you're going to have a lot of sin to fight. And you can't fight it very well together unless you have humility. I do, I do get a chuckle sometimes because I've asked hundreds of couples, gone through pre-marriage counseling with them, and I asked hundreds of couples uh, a series of questions to prepare them for their marriage. And one of the first is, why do you want to marry this person? And kind of... And, you know, I'm kind of looking for basically that answer. I want to marry them because I'm going to be in relationship with somebody. We're going to have a lot of sin to fight. And I, this is the person of all the sinners in the world. You're the one person I want to fight sin with. That's kind of the way it goes down. So, so most of the couples I've, I've counseled, they're Christians. And they give all the spiritual answers. You know, all the spiritual. I say, well, is there anything else? And what am I looking for? I'm looking for, are they attracted to them? Are they attracted to them? Because they think it's unspiritual to say, I'm, I'm attracted to them. 
you should be attracted to the person you want to marry. So I'm doing this with one guy, and he goes, yeah, I want to have sex with that woman. Great. It's exactly what you should want. You should want to have all the things being equal. Okay, hope that didn't embarrass you, but that's part of the deal. All right, second, according to God's precepts. Soak your heart in the Word of God. Know the Word of God. How does that help you make wise decisions? The Word of God gives you precepts that you live within and you have great freedom in there to make choices. How many of you use Colgate when you brush your teeth? Colgate? Crest? Baking soda? I'm the only baking soda guy in the room? Okay, see, you're, you're, you're free in the Lord to use Colgate or Crest or baking soda. That's, okay, you're free. Because you're not going to violate one of his principles there. I mean, should you brush your teeth? Yes. <laughs> Floss only the ones you want to keep. So here's God's precepts. So my wife burns the toast for breakfast. I'm going to divorce her because of it. Yes or no? Why? Because God's precepts protect the sanctity of marriage, and that's not a reason to end the marriage now. Okay? Uh, you have an opportunity to buy a house at the lake. What it's going to require, though, the monthly payment on it's going to require of you to not give to the church anymore. Do you make the purchase? No. No, you don't. Because God's will is clear. In your stewardship of your resources, all things being equal, 10% of your paycheck goes to the work of the Lord. And you don't make a purchase down here that negates that. It's really easy. So God's word sets us free. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, John 8. The truth will set you free. The more you know the word of God, the more you think the way God wants you to think, and you're going to make decisions that comport with his will. Okay? According to God's precepts. Third, checking your heart. Why do we need to do that? Because when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he gives us the desires of our hearts. Delight yourself in the Lord. He promises Psalm 37, 4, and he'll give you the desire of your hearts. Usually, when God is in control of your life, he's in control of your desires. And when you're delighting in him above, above all else, you're going to make decisions that honor him and glorify him. Right? So check your motives. We're warned about our motives in Proverbs. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. That means all things being equal, I'm going to give my, cut myself slack. I'm going to give myself the benefit of the doubt. And the Bible basically says, not so fast there. You check your motives. There's this way that seems right to a man, but at the end is the way to death. We can deceive ourselves, which is why we need the word of God. We need godly counsel. We need to pray. We often need to slow things down. Proverbs warns us about pride in this regard. Everyone who's proud is an abomination to the Lord. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. So, Lord, is this decision I'm making really all about pride? Is it haughty? Is it all about me? Or is it directed towards your glory? So ask the Holy Spirit to convict you which desires are selfish, which are not. And finally, we end with explicit trust in God. Remind yourself that the fundamental truth of belonging to Christ, and Paul in Romans 8.32 asks us to argue from the greater to the lesser. Argue from the greater to the lesser. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God is so immensely generous 
to not spare his son for your salvation, there's nothing else he won't give you that you need. Nothing. Including the guidance to make decisions that are good for you, good for others, and bring glory to his name. So we trust that. We believe that. Therefore, we make decisions without fear, doubt, or anxiety. Questions? Comments? This will bring us to the end of the guidance lecture. Thoughts? Someone said once, Mike, that that, uh, if you have a decision to make, sometimes that either one could please the Lord. In other words, should I be, um, you know, should I be a surgeon or should I be an anesthesiologist? Um, I mean, you know, both of them are sort of your freedom, mm-hmm. but, but that both would be pleasing to the Lord. Is, uh-huh. is that right? I it guess. is, yes. Yeah, and that really almost gets into the doctrine of calling. What has God called you to do on this earth? given the gifts, the personality, the background, the way he's wired you, what has God called you to do? Because it's like I read my devotions this morning, the parable of the sower in, in Mark chapter 4. And this, you know, the, the, the seed sown on the good soil bears fruit 60, 80, 100 fold. So there's fruit to be born in your life. Spiritual fruit as well as the fruit of making a difference in, in our culture, making a difference in College Park, Silver Spring. Heisel, whatever it is. So there's a calling on your life that God wants you to fulfill a purpose that's uniquely for you. Maybe in a certain season in your life, it's just raising kids. Janice and I are at a point in our lives where we, our kids are raised, and we're asking the question, we literally are asking the question right now, what about the next 20 years? How do we want to make a difference? How do our lives want to make a difference? What do we want to do for the next 20 years? And not just, well, we want to go to Scotland, which we do, but how do we want to serve Jesus in those 20 years? Because you know, when we stand before the Lord on Judgment Day, He's not going to care how good my golf game is. I, I might. Actually, on Judgment Day, it, I won't care how good my golf game is. Or how many countries I visited while I was retired or whatever. He's going to want to know, what did I do the things He created me to do? And while He gave me health and vitality and strength and a sound mind, using the gifts He's given me for His glory. That's the doctrine of calling. It's almost a whole different lesson. If you want to do it, we can do it. I'm happy to do it. Um, do you want to do a, doc- a lesson on the doctrine of calling? Yes. Would that be helpful? Yes. Next week, calling. Okay. okay. So, I'm out of time. Uh, it's 10 So let's do this, y'all. I am, um, the sermon's on the do- mostly the doctrine of election, which is a hard doctrine. And just out of curiosity, just surveying this room, how many of you feel like you, um, uh, how do I want to put it? How many feel like you, 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 know the, you know and believe the doctrine of election, predestination, judgment of God, like the back of your hand? Okay, so would you say the rest, you, you could benefit from some teaching on this? Okay. So it's a hard saying, and I want to preach as if there are unbelievers sitting there listening to this sermon. Because I, I want to be, because we want unbelievers, right? We want them in our church service. So we, won't, we don't want to speak as if they're not there. So let's pray specifically that the teaching from the scripture, because it's right in the passage, you know, God chose you, how do you get around it? So it's a privilege to preach it, but let's pray that it's a real encouragement to the people of God and uh, is not uh, unnecessarily off-putting to people who don't believe it. So let's pray. Lord, we look ahead to our worship service, and we thank you that we are free in this land to gather 
We thank you for this lovely building. We thank you for the many, many people who've made Sunday morning work. So many volunteers giving out of love for you in so many ways to bring about everything that will happen in the worship service. And Lord, unless you send your spirit, it's all in vain. So we pray, Lord Jesus, send your Holy Spirit that everything that's done brings glory to our God. It advances the grace of God into our hearts and particularly have mercy on me and the opening of my mouth to make known with clarity, with humility, with uh, wisdom, the things of the Lord. And we pray that as the word of God goes out, it will do the thing for which you've sent it. It will comfort and encourage <coughs> believers. And it will show unbelievers that all they need to do is ask you for the desire for Christ and you will get it. So make this morning's worship a triumph of grace. Make it glorious and pleasing to you as you send your spirit to us. For Jesus' sake, amen.